Hi, I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. Today, I'm sharing secrets with Mike Dudas, founder of The Block. It takes a lot to be a founder in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, and that might be truest of all if you're trying to found a media company in the blockchain space. You need a really thick skin, things move really fast, they're always super confusing, even if you feel like you're an expert. Uh, so it's a very challenging endeavor, and Mike's learned a lot of secrets along the way to trying to pull it off. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his thoughts on decentralized finance. We're also going to talk a little bit about mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency. And we'll reverse the question too. think about in what ways we're seeing traditional markets like the stock market become more gamified and take on more of the aspects of what we've seen in the cryptocurrency and blockchain world. Mike is a great guy, very generous with his time, super interesting to talk to. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without any further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for agreeing to share some secrets with me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, thanks for having me on tour. Great chatting. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, who are you? Uh, what do you do? What did you do? How did you get into the blockchain space? Let's just spend a couple minutes so that people listening have an idea of who, who they're hearing from. Totally. So you've been a participant uh, in the in blockchain crypto space uh, on a full-time basis since the beginning of 2018. So, you know, I top ticked it there and uh, decided to jump in, you know, full-time uh, have been, you know, we're now more than two and a half years later, uh, just you know, an incredible amount of, you know, building and innovation and new projects uh, during that time. So it's just been a wild time uh, in the crypto and blockchain space. But first uh, became you know, interested and, and involved and, and made my first cryptocurrency purchase in 2013. And the genesis of that is that I have spent time in traditional fintech. So, you know, at Google from 2009 to 2013, at Braintree Venmo, which was acquired by PayPal uh, through 2014, and then started a company called Button, which is a mobile affiliate. Uh, now it's a growth stage startup. Uh, but, you know, so basically prior to entering crypto full time, I'd worked in fintech and commerce and Bitcoin and, and then Ethereum. Uh, it was always a, an adjacent, uh, an extremely interesting area. And many fintech companies, you know, including the ones I was at, you know, PayPal and Venmo and Braintree, you know, were considering, you know, should we incorporate uh, Bitcoin at that time, you know, into our offerings? So allow our uh, you know, customers of Uber and Airbnb to pay with Bitcoin. Um, you know, this is you know, back when the sort of predominant um, messaging behind Bitcoin was that it was, you know, internet money and, and payment related. I think the narrative has changed over time and, and I still think it's going to get there um, over, over multiple decades. Anyway, I got interested around that time, purchased um, Bitcoin and then you know, paid attention for, for five years. Uh, before fully jumping in. And uh, the reason, I, just the energy that I saw um, where people were operating, you know, on the edge of, um, you know, of, on the edge of finance and on the edge of technology and money, it, it excited me so much. Uh, the passion in the crypto space is just different than, than the passion in the direct, uh, I'm sorry, in the larger tech community. I've never seen anything like it. 
uh, it can obviously become exhausting and, and too cult-like at times, but uh, but it really is. I consider crypto and blockchain to be you know, frontier technology, uh, and technology is just so meaningful uh, to the future of society and humanity. Uh, you know, particularly, I think you know, the most meaningful development I've seen in the last you know, nine months to fifteen months in the space is you know, the the development of central bank digital currencies. And government realization that you know money is going digital, and obviously you know that's being led by China, you know the most populous company uh, country on earth, uh, with a communist government. So, bottom line is, enter the space full time 2018, trying to figure out where could I add value. And, and I've always been somebody who likes to bring something that's at you know X number of people, and and try and get that to 50 or 100x. So, chose the path of media and information. Founded a company called The Block. Uh, and, you know, happy to talk more about that, but it's been just a wild, fun, exciting journey. Uh, and, and the whole mission of the block, originally it was supposed to be crypto simplified, but I think it's really hard to simplify crypto. I mean, it's extremely complex, multidisciplinary uh, topic. So we've actually tended more towards our current mantra of the first and final word in digital assets, but trying to bring a real research driven approach to covering projects, people, protocols uh, and developments in the space. Yeah, and of course, because things move so fast, because they are so complex, obviously, media in the blockchain space does play a large role. So later on, I think I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, kind of comparing media inside the crypto space, media outside the crypto space, kind of going to that disconnect, because it does exist. But let's talk specifically about like building a media company inside the crypto space obviously you're saying this is a multidisciplinary space you've got miners you've got developers you've got you know token issuers you've got the venture capital firms and then like we said there's this narrative around crypto and it's changed so much over time and so much of that narrative is set by like the mainstream press outside the space but there is a role for the media companies within the space to kind of tell the stories about like what does innovation look like what what are all the players doing that's impacting the future of the technology that's impacting the the future of how it's being invested in scaled adopted etc so it, it's an extremely valuable piece of the ecosystem so tell me in, in keeping with the ethos of this show what are some secrets that you learned trying to build not you know a token issuing company but a media company inside the blockchain space some secrets you kind of had to learn for yourself that maybe you didn't think of at all when you were trying to go down this path originally. So your number one is you know, to exist in this space, obviously you need to you know, have a, a thick armor, but to be noticed in space, it, it's really hard to enter it and sort of be a quiet, stayed, you know, Wall Street equity research type you know, business. You're just, you're just not going to get noticed and not get the message out, you have to you know, take an approach, and we have since day one at the block of one, you know, bringing people onto the team who are active participants in the ecosystem. So that means, uh, and that they're actual specialists, so, you know, deeply specialized practitioners in specific areas. So an example would be Larry Cermak, our head of research. He understands the exchange business, for example, mm -hmm. uh, with with an, an extraordinary depth and and. You know, Teo Leibowitz, who, who recently departed to, to join Uniswap and you know, covered Ethereum ecosystem and DeFi and open finance for us. 
was an absolute practitioner and participant in governance. So rule number one is you have to uh, be deeply enmeshed in the ecosystem and using the protocols and the projects and, and involved in them to credibly provide high signal information that's valuable to people. And so as a media, we'll call it a media company broadly, we actually skew more towards the research side in terms of, you know, we have more researchers than journalists. Mm-hmm. And so one you know, secret, we'll call it, is you have to be deeply research-driven in this space. So you need folks who have you know, deep economic backgrounds, um, who, again, have been practitioners and who, who you know, understand statistics, economics, and so can actually be the primary source of information versus what happens in traditional journalism is, you know, if you look at, for example, how Bloomberg covers the space, they're just, you know, they have a journalist who's not trained in any of these disciplines and is not, you know, involved in them on a day-to-day basis, who is effectively calling up people like our research team to, to get an insight on something that, you know, they read about or, or somebody brought to their attention with a press release. Our secret is, you know, having the research team be directly in-house and driving a lot of, you know, what the journalism team then, you know, finds interesting to research and, and discover. Uh, and also, you know, sort of publishing and sharing some things after the research team publishes what they've found. The two work hand in hand with one another. So our model is, you know, our, our journalism, which reaches more people, is, is, is top of funnel. It's, it's more accessible to the average person. And so people see it. But, you know, the real, the deepest, deepest value for, you know, the most important or impactful people in the crypto and blockchain space is, is coming from our, uh, you know, the block research team. And uh, we learned that pretty early on, you know, just sort of regurgitating press releases and putting out price, you know, price stories like you see in most crypto media, mm-hmm. you know, while it gets page views and clicks, there's just not long-term sustainable value being created. Uh, and, you know, anybody can go to CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap and, and get that information without reading it. So it's, it's really, you're only valuable if you're providing insights and an edge that's based on direct practical experience. That was an uncomfortable learning because it then gets into, you know, questions of, well, are you... Are you somehow compromised? Are you, right. you know, what are the what are the what are the sort of ethical implications? And and you know, and, and that's come up recently where people have questioned it. But uh, my feeling and, and strong belief is that you know the code of research and providing information to people, it, you almost have an obligation. Even you know, Anthony Pompliano recently said you know it's important to have skin in the game to to have a believable perspective. And and mm-hmm. I do. I do think that that, you know, what Pomp said there is is something that I agree with. And we've taken to that. I think we've embraced that more over the past year, regardless of criticism that, you know, getting back to the thick skin. Right. We can talk about this more. I'm sure it's, it's probably another question. But, you know, in the past have probably responded and, and fed trolls, you know, as we were starting to get as we were trying to get noticed and, and stand out and, and we're really aggressive. I think that had a time and place, and I'm glad that that is, you know, we're, we're kind of past that stage. We, we've built a reputation for credible uh, research and, and information of substance. Right. Uh, and so, you know, now we can we can do our best work and, and not really you know, be too concerned about 
the sniping because we just have a body of work and a team that has uh, you know substantial credibility built uh, and you can only build that over time as well yeah there, there's two big things there that i want to dig into first is this question of objectivity where it's so hard to feel like especially in a space this complex and when the asset the digital asset is also it is what unlocks these products like you can't really understand uniswap without using it you can't really use it without ethereum so now you're an ethereum holder does that make you more likely to become some kind of maximalist i mean it, it's like you said it's really hard to untangle those questions you would assume that you know if you're employing the right people to report on these stories they can maintain some level of objectivity but there's really no enforcement of objectivity in the crypto space and everybody has a bag and everybody has an opinion uh, I, I think it's kind of hard to wish that away. The other piece of, of what you're saying that's really interesting to me is this balance between building an audience and building a reputation. And you don't want to ever usually cash in your reputation in order to build an audience. Even if you've built a good reputation, it's, you know, it, it does, as you say, take a very long time to build it. So maybe let's focus on that for a second. Like, obviously, if you're a very research-driven publication, your reputation is everything. You don't want to screw that up. But if you're too niche and you haven't really fleshed out, say, a subscription product and you're relying on reach and you're competing with a lot of other publications that have substantial reach, what's that balance like? And how is that kind of adjusted over time? Like, at least in your experience uh, with the block, like how, how did that balance sort of shift? And, and were there any catalysts along the way that made you decide, OK, this really needs to shift? Uh, yeah, so a couple things that we, yeah, that I personally had a hypothesis about, where I think was proven wrong, candidly, uh, was that uh, people wanted deep investigative journalism and reporting in the crypto space, and and you know we would we did a, a good amount of that in the second half of 2018, first half of 2019, and it was wild, like the people. You know, you you'd do an airtight piece of investigative journalism. You know, very few people would read it. You'd get very little reaction. Mm -hmm. You'd get people sort of angry and and shouting. And and so, the incentives and the impact. Like I expected that we would have really significant impact by uncovering things that were sort of obvious. You know, whether it be a scam, whether it be you know, a, a conflict of interest that was obvious to us. Um, but I think what was really what became clear pretty quickly is crypto and the community and the participants um, just valued different things. And, and frankly, you know, I, I appreciate it in some ways in that it's a community of builders and they actually want to and an optimistic one, you know, despite what you might see at times, you know, mm -hmm. with sort of on Twitter flame wars or, or Reddit or Discord, you know, different pockets um, where, you know, maybe you don't have healthy discussions. The vast majority of people are builders and optimists. And builder doesn't mean, hey, I build a protocol. That's the only manifestation of that. It could be uh, lawyers building regulatory frameworks. So the biggest thing is we switched over time from doing, I think, more, let's like really critically, deeply analyze this and, and say why it may not be a good thing. And we still do that where it matters and where it's impactful, but in a world of limited resources and limited attention, uh -huh. we found that you could create more value by 
actually pointing out the most exciting things happening, right? The most innovative. And, and that doesn't mean being a booster and a cheerleader. It just means deeply researching trends and trying to provide insights that will help, you know, with capital formation, with, you know, people moving to projects that, that we think with a large, with mostly, you know, an objective lens, um, whether it be, you know, total amount of value locked, uh, you know, total number of transactions, whatever the real raw metrics are that are that are growing and really highlighting so that people focus on that. So we really shifted our business, I think, from being a, originally we staked out a space as let's just call it like the skeptics, you know, and the mm-hmm. uh, the space. And I'm using very simple words that oversimplify what we were doing, but and have moved much more towards let's really dive in. And so there's been a shift, I, I would say, in our coverage. And it's been appreciated and, and well-received towards, we'll put a critical lens towards pretty much any claim made to us by a project, by a team, by a PR firm. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll put all the caveats in about certain things. But you know, our analysis, we brought on more technical researchers who now you know, get deep into you know, the code and, and you know, how the protocols work. Uh, and that's been wonderful. But yeah, so financial markets, people want to make money and they want things to grow. And right. uh, if you can put together a you know, rigorous and really highly professionalized group of people who are providing information about you know, where they see signal and they see growth and they see positives. And, and by the way, where they see things that might be you know, not right, like we, we do highlight things um, that might be risky or where there's not a lot going on. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was like a Tezos piece we did, like DeFi projects on Tezos recently, and there's just not a whole lot happening there relative to what's happening on Ethereum, right? Right. And so, you know, by doing the research and showing what's happening, you sort of show, well, look, there's a whole lot more energy over here than there is uh, over here. That doesn't mean that that won't change over time in Tezos, and they're true believers, but you know, maybe two years ago, we might have written a, a snarky piece. And instead, you just, you know, you write the facts and the research. So, so that's been an important shift for us and one that has helped our reputation early on, you know, picking fights and with specific people and projects, it, you know, helps you get noticed, but long term, it really can be a reputation burnout destroyer. People like to be around, you know, hopeful, optimistic people. And, you can actually affect more change by getting people to shift attention to the things that are growing than by continual takedowns. One other quick aside is in, in, in broader tech, you're seeing this macro argument happening where I, I've seen a shift over the last decade in terms of mainstream tech coverage that went from, we'll call it 80% sort of positive and highlighting the positive force of these companies, Facebook, Google, um, Airbnb, you know, Uber, to you know, the last couple of years, where you know, eighty percent of the coverage is you know, takedowns and, and not really looking at looking at exploring you know, emerging, exciting trends that are positive. And you know, I, I think the balance is probably better somewhere in the middle. Right. So anyway, we've we've I think hit a groove where we like to cover, particularly from a research lens, areas that are growing. You know, yeah. things like deep, things like central bank digital currencies places where there's innovation, imagination, and, and you know, new financial paradigms being built that will create value over the long run. Yeah, the nice thing about, I guess, coming from a deep crypto winter into seeing the green shoots of spring is there is some growth that you can highlight. You can feel like you can be objective in covering the space 
and also be positive, which didn't seem possible for a long time. It felt like you had to be, you know, if you were going to be positive, you had to be non-objective, <laughs> or you had to end up a little less, slightly less positive than some of the people who, who were caught up in maybe what we'd characterize as mania. But I want to talk about this disconnection, like I promised, between the mainstream press and the crypto press, because when it comes to covering the crypto space, what you're talking about, the skeptical lens that the block was taking, is really the permanent lens of the mainstream press, or at least that's seemed to be the opinion. And the journalists that I've spoken to have said, well, it's because a lot of people overpromised and underdelivered on blockchain, especially around like 2017, 2018. And now, you know, almost anything that comes out in the mainstream press is skepticism first and positivity later. And most of what you see is like Bitcoin being used for ransomware or exchange hacks. Like people, I think you're right in saying there's been a real negative tone shift in the mainstream press, not just towards crypto, but everything where it's so much, so much more compelling to cover the things that are completely falling apart. And the crypto press, you know, when they see these things that are really starting to work, like the, the progress with decentralized exchanges and everything else, like that's really cool to see, but it's only widening that gap. So how do you think this is going to play out? Is the mainstream press going to start discovering things about crypto that it actually likes and start playing a little bit nicer? And then I guess we should define like what mainstream might be. Like I'm talking even like TechCrunch, not even like New York Times, which has always historically had like, I, I would say the most negative lens, but maybe that's a personal opinion. Wh where do you see this going? I guess is, is really just the question. Like how, how do you think mainstream press coverage over crypto, given what you've seen is going to change over the next couple of years, or is it going to change? Yeah, so I think it's going to continue to, I don't think you're going to see from, you know, I consider the mainstream press that covers this area regularly to be Bloomberg, Financial Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Uh, mm -hmm. There are others, but let's just let's just start with those four. You know, Financial Times has a blog that, you know, Alphaville, where the folks are actively antagonistic to crypto. I mean, they, yeah. they think it's a joke and, and they make it light of it as a joke and the good news is, you know, Financial Times, their readers are the people from HSBC and, you know, other big banks and financial institutions. And guess what? You know, they're reading it and they're actually disagreeing with the FT folks. Uh, we just saw today, you know, the Libra Association hired a, a HSBC banker you know, as, right. as their head. So I'm not optimistic the coverage tone will change. I think you're going to see the only pieces that will have any air of positivity will be price-led pieces. Oh, my gosh, look, Bitcoin hit you know, a new all-time high. You know, that's yeah. something I think will happen over the next 12, 18 months, you know, hopefully sooner for all of us who are, who are deep <laughs> in the community. But the, the negativity and the, and the snark uh, will continue. People, I don't think the mainstream media has a full understanding of the fact that this isn't just technology, it's money, and that money takes you know, many decades to change. Right. And so they've lost patience. It's not a beat also that, you know, unless they're talking about price, the readers like deeply care about. And lastly, you can't half cover this. I mean, it's like, it's like biotech. You don't see very good biotech coverage in, in the mainstream right. media. I don't, I don't see an article where, you know, I learn anything of, of true depth on a, on a very regular basis. So these well, are I will say, I will say the feedback yeah. cycles in biotech <laughs> happen sort of on a very different uh, wavelength and amplitude than they do in the crypto space where, you know, you see things implode within 24 hours. True, true, true. So the bigger problem is that technology beats are becoming, again, more highly technical. Like 
you know, it was pretty easy early on with AOL, like access to information and, you know, you would ignore the sort of lower level technology stuff. Right. Right. And so what you're seeing is you know, tech coverage, again, becomes more about people, frauds, stories, hit pieces and takedowns because there's just not a fundamental depth as technology specialization becomes and, and multidisciplinary uh, requirements to understand things become you know so important. It's just moving too fast for a trained journalist who's not a practitioner. By the way, you know, so so I don't expect mainstream media to change. So the people who you're going to have a set of people who are going to get more curious and are going to go deeper, right? So in tech, that means you know people start reading Substacks, where you're seeing incredible analysis now come you know, directly from the best writers, the best yeah. journalists, the best yeah. researchers. Um, and, and I think it's not only going to be Substack, you're going to see that uh, across you know, pretty much any publishing platform. And I think that is a bigger trend. I think individual experts will start to eat into uh, really important, high value, quote unquote, niches, you know, things like coverage of China, for example, China-US relations. I subscribe to Sinocism, which is an incredible Substack by Bill Bishop because I just haven't been getting the same depth of coverage and breadth of coverage in the mainstream media. So obviously, we've seen a lot about, you know, the Uyghur um, issues, and I don't know if we can call it a, quite a genocide quite yet, but you know, that issue has been, I think, widely covered. But there are so many other issues happening in China right now that, that aren't being covered by the mainstream press. You know, it's like TikTok and internment camps are the only two things that we're hearing about, are detention camps. Right. That's what you get mainstream media. So when you translate that to crypto, it just means you're going to hear about price and you're going to hear about scams uh, and you're not going to hear about much else. And and the folks like Nathaniel Popper, who used to be deeply curious, wrote one of the best books yep. on the space, Gold, like he's clearly lost interest and you know only covers sort of a story once every few months that has some sort of shock value up front. You know, Olga at Bloomberg, you know, all she writes and, and you know, I think she's a good person, but the only thing she writes, and maybe it's because it, you know, her readers click, is, is sort of negative stuff right. um, and skeptical stuff. That's not changing. So what we need to do is continue to build and bring in people who are native to this. So the journalists at the block hires are typically in the first one, two, three, four years of their career, right? Yeah. And they're, they're native to crypto. So I think it's going to be very bottoms up. We're distributing our content now into Robinhood. We're distributing it into Coinbase. So you know, people are actually seeing it in the financial apps they're using. And you know, it's a trend you're going to continue to see is those financial services that people use and interact with and are doing more and more and, and they're spending so much of their day and you know, that's where they're going to get their information from. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's going to be a much more positive uh, feed with much higher signal information. It is so interesting to see how the broader trends in the world are playing out on this like microverse scale with the collapse is a strong word, but the implosion of legacy media and, and their business models and how that's kind of impacting. And like you're saying with Substack and things like that, where it's like the unbundling of information into individual informational streams that are produced by individual content creators, same thing with Twitch streamers, so on and so forth. I've always been fascinated by those trends. And, you know, now we're sort of rebundling 
a lot of the way that this information gets processed you know like you you open telegram and you've got 70 channels or you have a you know you have a dao which is made up of a bunch of individual members managing something versus like a traditional corporation so all sorts of new structures all sorts of communication systems and platforms being trialed within the cryptocurrency space that impact the media space both inside of it and outside of it but one thing that you said there was really interesting to me, which was you talked about this information now being direct in Robinhood. And to me, it seems like everything in crypto does funnel down eventually to, am I going to buy this asset? Am I going to trade this asset? Because you do need to buy it e even to use it, right? Like we haven't solved fiat on-ramps and off-ramps and, and things like that. So the legacy world, right? Forget the press for a second, but let's keep it like mainstream retail adoption. It feels like that's becoming a lot more hyper gamified and just as incentive driven as crypto with platforms like Robinhood and zero fee trading and and so much of like, you know, what happens on Twitter and these new influencers like Dave Portnoy and things like, you know, people who are just willing to randomly throw around six to seven figure sums for the entertainment of an audience. Like now it feels like I think Vitalik had a great tweet about it. I'm never I'm not going to recall it word for word, but he was basically like we all thought that you know like eventually cryptocurrency would evolve and become more like the stoic legacy markets of old and he was like we were all wrong the legacy markets now all behave like the crypto markets and everything's gone to hell so is that good like here's my question is that a good thing is that a bad thing like i guess for i guess for the crypto space is what i'm asking um but overall maybe too if it's a good thing like will this retail interest in uh, in assets and trading and so on, is that a good thing for crypto? Is it a good thing for them? Or is, is there some danger here? Like, should should we be very afraid that like something bad will happen to crypto or something bad will happen to these new users if they do get pulled into our crazy world? So I'm definitely an optimist on this front. I mean, I've been selling emerging you know financial products for years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I thought Venmo which you know, was considered risky when it came out, right? Texting money from one person to another and eventually an app and a, and a social feed that people said, oh my gosh, you're, you know, you're sharing your, your payments publicly. So I, I think many things that are um, you know, framed as dangerous uh, are often you know, going to be the default behaviors of the future, right? right. And, and so, you know, as humans, we have a tendency to focus on obviously the most extreme examples of something, right? The Robin Hood trader who started with a hundred dollars and you know, making this up a little bit, but you know, hundred dollars got up to a hundred thousand and then lost it all. And like, you're going to hear the stories, mm -hmm. but you know, on balance, the notion that somebody with 500 bucks can, can get in there and, and buy, you know, fractional shares in their favorite companies and, and have been making money, you know, this year is a positive thing. It introduces them to the notion that you know, we complain constantly and particularly crypto is like there's money printing and you know, the value of the dollar loses you know, value year on year and it's going to, and you make no money by putting cash in the bank. Like the fact that retail was discovering, you know, risk assets and has access to them right. on balance to me is, is wildly positive. Now, it clearly is is important that we balance sort of how we present them with the more complex manifestations of that, whether it's options trading, margin trading, mm -hmm. things that actually can cause people lose far much more money than they knew or expected. So 
I think, you know, maybe the best guardrails haven't been in place in some cases. I mean, Robinhood's been wildly covered. But again, on balance, I think it's a wonderful company that's opening up access uh, to so many more people to asset classes that at an early point in their life that are, I optimistically believe, going to create more wealth for them um, than they would have had the opportunity to otherwise do. And crypto is the same thing. So I, I, obviously, I, I pour my heart and soul into this ecosystem. I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, I think they're going to go in value, both monetarily, but also in terms of use cases and you know, how many people are using and building on Ethereum or you know, storing value in Bitcoin today and using it as a, you know, internet money that's censorship resistant in the future at scale. To get there, though, price is absolutely what matters, right? So, so we know this and it makes sense. I mean, people want to make money. They speculate. I mean, speculation is, is how new asset classes come to fruition and, and form. And you know, you're going to see bubbles, you're going to see bursts, people are going to lose money, but a lot of people are going to make money. But you need that sort of price action and attention to get people engaged right. and to get them to exposed to these things and then to do the next level of digging and go deeper. And, and we've seen that as the price of Bitcoin, sort of, I think it 3x from the bottom earlier this year, Ethereum, similar, even more so, I think, from its bottom. We saw you know, significant more retail signups. We have a research subscription, but we also have um, more of a retail-focused one. Mm-hmm. And we saw you know, a significant uptick in signups. So clearly, people were following price and then saying, hey, I want to go, de- go deeper right. and learn more and get maybe you know, a couple weeks ahead of where I would have otherwise been because you know, that's where the money's made. <laughs> yeah, price, price leads awareness in this space. And as you know, somebody who works and has worked at crypto projects for a while, like there's really no way to sort of break that natural law. It does not appear to be that awareness sort of leads price. It's chicken and egg a bit because it is a self-reinforcing cycle. Yep. But but now there's a there's a new game in town. We've always had the the capability for fire. You know, like we could always start fires, but now we have really found out how to create lighter fluid. And DeFi, like I describe it, I've always kind of called it like leverage as a service. And it's just like how much can composability, how much can just like having these lending platforms, flash loans, et cetera, how much can you tie everything together to just kind of like have these massive explosions of capital? And then you've got like exchanges that are willing to attack other exchanges with incentive models. But then you have the VCs playing a role. So DeFi is crazy, right? It's it's nuts. But obviously it's what's driving growth, at least in any metric that we have for growth in the space, whether it be price, total value locked, whatever you think of these metrics, the numbers that are going up are almost all associated with with DeFi. And I know and how much people are earning by farming and oh yeah stake. Yep. Yeah. APYs I think staking is DeFi. I call staking sustainable DeFi, sustainable farming. <laughs> it's a little more organic. Yep. So I, I'm a fan. But I see that you're dabbling. You know, I've looked through your Twitter feed. Uh, so, but I know that you're also not somebody like, I I think you've got such a good perspective because like you've worked in FinTech, you've worked in the space, but you're not a cheerleader for any particular protocol or project. You, you have a very objective and skeptical view. And at the same time, as you said, not necessarily pessimistic. So what is your perspective on DeFi? How sustainable does it all feel? And regardless of whether it's sustainable, like where are you seeing the most 
positive progress or what's the most exciting thing? Let's keep it positive, right? What's the most exciting thing you're seeing in DeFi right now from your unique mic perspective? So, yeah, so I think, you know, on balance, I'm really excited by DeFi. You know, the notion that we can build financial markets and financial market infrastructure without trusted intermediaries and you know gatekeepers who charge fees kyc and and block like i think in the long run that's a massive positive okay that you know mike can lend to tour with you know no intermediary and, and nobody able to you know, stop that transaction from happening so you know I, i'm excited about things like you know obviously lending and borrowing you know about liquidity protocols that allow people to, to move in and out of tokens. And I'm not as concerned. So DeFi is moving extremely fast. There is definite a significant amount of scamminess and, and copying and aping and people rug pulling and just running with money today. It doesn't concern me as much as, for example, the ICO craze, which was more accessible to retail than this is. Okay. So DeFi is not the UI is not very accessible to the average person. The notion of yield farming and farming tokens period is just like something that even even I have to like spend considerable time reading the block, talking to experts to figure out you know, how the hell to, to do this stuff. And I've actually not. So I've, I've dabbled on Uniswap and purchased some tokens and, and just kind of played around with it. I, I haven't put a significant amount of money into this. I haven't actually farmed myself. Mm-hmm. It's just been experimental. And the reason for that is, so, so right now it's a, it's a big money person's game. You know, it's, it's a VC's game. It's a trader's game. And those are the people who are printing money. I don't love that the exchanges, uh, the centralized exchanges in particular, are becoming, it seems like, ever more... Um, rapid to so those are the folks who are the gatekeepers to retail mm-hmm. or the on ramps to retail and and so I think the one really risky and bad trend right now is that these tokens like even the Uniswap token which I think yeah, has a potential to be just a phenomenal you know return for farmers is something that uh, is that necessarily going to be something that's a, a good opportunity for somebody who just buys it on Coinbase and has no idea what it is right but just sees a token it's a token mm-hmm. that went up twenty yesterday. So that's where I get nervous. DeFi as DeFi, I'm excited about. DeFi as something that becomes a token listed on exchanges, which is how most people will interact with them right. without any understanding of the underlying you know, fee accrual and value accrual mechanisms. That's dangerous and risky. And so I'm nervous there. And I yeah. give people money. And so there was a there was a higher bar just three, four months ago. You weren't seeing these tokens get listed unless they were like, right. we'll call them blue, blue chip projects, right? Compound, you know, zero X, et cetera. But, you know, now you're seeing things get listed like within 24 hours. I mean, it's just wild. Right. So that's, I, I do think that the bigger, more established brands in the space, the Binance's, the Coinbase's, they really do have an obligation to, I think, do more vetting, warning, and education for their 
customers as to you know what again the value accrual mechanism is for these financial assets that they're now bringing to a broader base of people. That's different than the person who's you know using Uniswap and understands how to do that. Once you've gotten to that point, you know you typically have a better knowledge, and if you're willing to pay you know twenty thirty percent premium gas fees of, of what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm going to characterize what you're talking about here before we get into our last question. I, I'm going to say like it's really just a reflection of the global deterioration of our attention spans, and it just shows how many independent actors need to, you know, again they're not intentionally, but like their their incentives are coordinated in such a way where it's like faster and faster feedback cycles, faster and faster loops between the creation of the token, the listing of the token, the speculation on the token, the collapse of the token. It's all getting so condensed. And if you're trying to build something highly technical and complex that you have a vision to reach to like millions of users, like that's that's my approach at Secret Network. That's the approach of our entire community. Like it's challenging to always then be competing with an ever shortening attention span, not just on the part of retail users, but on the part of every stakeholder in the space. Like any VC who ignores DeFi is doing a disservice to their LPs. Any exchange that ignores DeFi is doing a disservice to their, you know, equity stakeholders because they're just it's compromising their revenues. So it's just showing how all of these incentives can be so interconnected and so they can be so easily subverted because of just again numbers number goes up is such a powerful force but yet right we're being optimistic and i i agree with you that like on a, on a high level permissionless finance is such an exciting concept that we have to be optimistic and we have to just assume that maybe we can self-regulate maybe over time we, we find some best practices maybe somebody has to get hurt worse than they have maybe they're you know we just haven't seen that that one critical event even when we think we have <laughs> maybe it just hasn't happened so here's my last question for you mike because this has been a wonderful conversation thank you so much again for taking all this time my last question going back again to the theme of the show what is a secret about yourself that people just don't really know but would help them kind of understand you help them understand any of the perspectives you've shared to to this point on this show just anything at all that you think uh, somebody listening should walk away from this show understanding about you? So I think the biggest is that I was a genuine Bitcoin maximalist. You know, when I entered the space early 2018, late 2017, I entered full time, you know, mm -hmm. and I only owned Bitcoin as an asset, didn't own anything else other than the Bitcoin cash that I got, you know, at Fork years ago until this year. Uh, and I, I publicly said that. So that part of it's not a secret. But but I really did believe for a long time that Bitcoin was the place where, you know, the most innovation was happening in crypto. And that even things like decentralized finance would be able to be built, you know, as, as layer two services on top of Bitcoin over time. Uh, and I know many Bitcoin maximalists still believe that. That was my default point of view. It no longer is. And therefore, you know, I, I think it's critically important. Uh, and I've always been interested, but but skeptical of, of other projects. And part of that was that there were so many, you know, ICO based projects that skyrocketed to, you know, $10 billion plus of value and, and just didn't deliver anything. Right. And even like ones that are still in the top 10, like Bitcoin Cash and like Litecoin, that I just don't think have significant value, like XRP. 
And so, you know, that jaded me and I was very skeptical of anything that was non-Bitcoin, but looking at Ethereum and what's happening there and many of the, again, DeFi projects, but also, you know, ERC-20 tokens doing other things on top of Ethereum has gotten me much more excited about the space. So the secret here is that when I left the CEO role at the block, it was because I wasn't the right leader you know, moving forward for, for that company, a, a, you know, an information services company in the financial space. You know, I've, I've built technology companies you know, throughout my life. Uh, and I thought I was going to leave the space entirely. But now with the benefit of five months of time and talking with folks you know, outside of, again, you know, sort of the pure Bitcoin community and talking to people who are working on token projects in other areas, I've really gotten a renewed interest and optimism that you know, basically token-based incentives can solve you know, real-world business problems, right? So some of the things that interest me that have failed in the past, things like civil, right? Things mm-hmm. like poet, which were sort of media-incentivized tokens for, for people to take actions, read articles, share them, you know, brave, you know, trying to replace advertising. I'm not going to work in that space. That's not the one that I want to you know, spend the next 10 years on. But uh, I'm increasingly likely to actually do something crypto related with my next project tied to identity, tied to sort of reputation and professional reputation. Um, and the space, maybe it's a good conversation for, for another time, maybe another podcast. But uh, the notion that LinkedIn and, and sort of nodes in our professional networks are poorly represented today and losing more and more signal by the day. And, and Balaji, by the way, sort of Azen talks a lot about this and I think has done a lot of the best sort of public facing work and blogging and tweeting about it. But it's a space that's really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm much, much, much less skeptical of, of tokens and, and tokenomics than I was in the past. In fact, I'm much more optimistic about it. And I, I regret, I would say, the approach that I took to scoff at most tokens as, as useless and you know, why do you need a blockchain? I'm much more eyes open now. Mm. And I'm excited that I have the freedom to, to, to be that way, you know, and, and to be an entrepreneur again and, and pure entrepreneur and just you know, think about how token incentives can drive behavior in, in all areas, you know, identity, reputation, professional uh, network, you know, being one that I'm very excited about, but there are others. I'm, I, I'm such, I'm such a fan of the idea of like using tokens for reputational models exploring again how these permissionless systems can impact uh how we currently construct our social networks or our understandings of social networks and again how they change our incentive models within those social networks i'm I'm sure whatever you do is going to be fascinating groundbreaking stuff and and at least experimental and again like I, i think i hope people are walking away with a sense of your renewed optimism and i i don't think people have you know, gotten the impression at all that that you're a distinctly negative person towards the the space as a whole. It's but obviously, like you're you're trying to be an objective person. You're going to see the ugly sides of this space sometime, and I do as well. But I appreciate Mike everything that you uh, have shared with us on the show, everything that you've built in the space so far. I do think that it's a net positive. I think whatever comes next will be an even greater positive. So just thank you for taking all of this time. I think we touched on some really interesting stuff. I know you're already setting yourself up for your next appearance. I'm sure we'll make it happen. But in the meantime, good luck building out whatever the next venture is. Uh, I'll drop some links in the description so that people can follow you on Twitter and follow the block and keep track of everything that's happening. In the meantime, best of luck to you, man. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Tor. Likewise, really excited about what you're building as well. Cheers, buddy. Thanks.
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, and make sure to check out all the Secret Network communities that you can see here, including the Secret Chat, the Secret Forum, and of course our Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time we share secrets.